You're listening to Phanalysis, a sci-fi and fantasy TV podcast. In this episode, we are discussing the TV series Runaways on Hulu. Actually, I think they call it Marvel's Runaways on Hulu. My name is Chris. And my name is Stephanie. And just as a spoiler warning, the way that we're planning to structure this episode, in the beginning of of the episode, we're going to discuss general thoughts, what the series is about, non-spoilery content in the first few minutes or so, and then we will delve more into spoilery content, so we'll give a clear warning when we hit the, the spoiler point. So let's start out by talking a little bit about what the series is about. Chris, do you want to give us a brief synopsis of what's going on here? Sure. So I think what you need to know, if you're like, what is this show? What are you guys talking about? It is about a group of six teenagers that find out their parents who would meet every year for like a big meeting for their their charity organization called Pride. It turns out that those quote unquote charity organization meetings were actually a front for them conducting ritual human sacrifice. So of course, upon finding out that their parents may very well be evil, they're like, okay, what do we do about this? And so that's sort of the setup then is these kids have to figure out what to do now that they found out that their parents might be supervillains. Meanwhile, also heavily focused on in the TV series is the parents trying to figure out what they're doing because there's interpersonal strife among the group of the 12 parents. And also there's this mysterious guy named Jonah, which actually is kind of a mild spoiler. But what were your thoughts about the series as a whole, Stephanie? You know, I really ended up liking it a lot more than I thought I would. I started watching it because I I signed up for a Hulu, you know, free month trial when we needed to, I needed to rewatch an episode of Bob's Burgers for this podcast. And I was like, you know, this is going on. I've been hearing good stuff. I'll start watching it. So I started watching the first couple episodes and I thought, yeah, this is okay. You know, some of the stuff I'm a little bored with, but this is pretty good. But then when, when I hit like my, my free trial cutoff point and I couldn't watch any more episodes, I was like, oh, I'm so bummed. I can't watch one <laughs> runaway. I, I ended up getting attached to the characters quite a bit. I think when I when I watched the end of the se- season, I think it ends on a pretty strong couple episode, two to three episode run. And so I, I think as a whole, the season was actually pretty good. I do have some things that I have some issues with. In particular, I'm going to say Gert's storyline. If you haven't watched the series yet and Gert is your favorite character, I feel like there's stuff that might disappoint you here, just as a warning. But I think ultimately I like where she ended up, so maybe that'll give you some hope. Eh. However, uh, like I said, the characters really sucked me in. I think the casting was pretty good. I really liked a lot of the actors, and they really kept me engaged even when the storyline wasn't doing it for me. I like how diverse this show is. I think it's actually maybe a little bit more diverse than the original comic run. And kudos that they seem to actually hire, I'm thinking particularly of Nico's family, they actually hired all actors of Japanese descent. They weren't just trying to substitute any Asian into this Japanese family. Astonishing. I know. They were like, we're, we hired all Japanese people to play a Japanese family. And there was no there was no Asian flute music that I heard <laughs> in the entire season. It made me so happy. <laughs> As you and I weep with joy for slightly different reasons. 
they're like, yay, no flute music. And I'm like, they're, they're actually Japanese. <laughs> it's not Asian is good enough. <laughs> so what did you think, Chris? I, I did read the comics back in the day. I have great fondness for the comic series. I don't think I actually finished reading all of the series, but I, I, I do believe I've read everything that Brian K. Vaughn has written. And he was the originator of the comics. Yes. Right? Brian K. Vaughn and Adrian Alfona were the creators of the original series. Yes. And so I guess I should maybe say that I read, I think, two issues of Joss Whedon's run on Runaways. So I do not have a lot of foundation from the comics when I started watching the series. We will have different different perspectives on the on the show in that regard. Now, I... I signed up for Hulu specifically for this, which I knew I was going to. Like, as soon as I heard they were doing it, I'm like, oh, I'm going to have to get Hulu for that. So I was excited about this. But it's that whole excitement that comes with the anxiety, right? When there's something that you love so much that they're doing a version of. So, like, it could be really great because you thought the source material was so great. But also, so much could go so wrong. Yeah. Because, of course, like, it exists in your head and in your heart, right? And so it made me anxious. But I've got to say, overall, I really liked this series. As you mentioned, the cast is great. But I did think there were some pacing issues, especially in the first half of the season. Agreed. I, I also have some mixed feelings about the plot. Again, mostly because I read the comics. And so part of me is like, that's not how that's supposed to be which I realize is is on me, but some of the changes I really, really liked, but some of the others, I just kind of can't figure out why they made them. I'm like, okay, they're probably going somewhere with this, but but where and why? They focus a lot more on the parents in the series than they do in the comics. I kind of get it, but also I'm like, do we need to? <laughs> You know, overall, even with the parents, like, I really enjoy the casting. I think they cast good people for the parts. As you mentioned, like, even the parts that I don't care as much about, I don't necessarily mind. And yes, I agree with you that the last few episodes, like, really stepped it up. And uh, we're kind of more like, you know, okay, this is more what I was expecting. <laughs> but I liked it. I liked it. So I think it sounds generally between the two of us, we would recommend giving it a watch. Yeah, I would also say at least watch the first three episodes before giving up on it. They released the first three at one time. And I feel like there's a solid reason they did that. Because <laughs> it does sort of take them until episode three to like really step up the pace a little. Now I think we're going to move into more spoilery talk. So if you haven't seen the series and you don't want spoilers, I would stop here. There will definitely be spoilers for the entirety of the season. So if you're spoiler-averse, stop here. Okay, so let's talk about Alex, who is basically the, the leader of the group. I think that's fair to say, right? I think so, too. And it surprised me, given that he is leader of the group, I felt like he didn't get quite as much of the screen time as I would expect. Did you have that impression, or is that just me? Yeah, I think that's fair. I think he also didn't get quite as much, I don't know, 
I was going to say wasn't go- didn't get quite as much character development. I don't know if that's necessarily fair of me to say because he did he did get some interesting character beats for sure in the the later part of the season. Yeah, it felt like the majority of his storyline was wrapped up in Amy and Nico and that secret that he was keeping there, as well as his crush that he was hesitant to reveal to Nico. And so it felt like he got stuck a bit, character development-wise, because they saved that reveal about Amy and what happened with that and what he knew about it until very late in the season. So it felt like we got a couple of breadcrumbs for him along the way. And he had we had that one episode where he was kidnapped, but... Overall, it felt like he didn't have as much movement in his character development as some of the other characters did. Yeah, but he did get that really important story arc with his dad's nemesis. That's true, yeah. And that played out in some interesting ways. So I feel more like they're setting up big stuff for Alex, maybe more than they gave him big stuff in the last part of the season. And it also might have been he was set up that way because it feels like the other characters, they had stuff that they had to acquire or realize about themselves to turn them into the quote-unquote superhero version of themselves. Because it's my impression, at least, that Alex, he's just very smart. Like, that's kind of what he brings to the group. He's a leader. He's very intelligent. He obviously, in the series at least, has, like, the computer technical skills. But, like, for Chase, we had to see him get the fisticons. Gert had to find her dinosaur. Like, the others had kind of connecting to their abilities or special devices that Alex didn't go through. Right. Yeah, exactly. That is Alex's deal, is he's the brain of the group. Yeah, it's more of an inherent quality than it is a skill or an an object. Yes. I did feel bad for that character slash actor a little bit because I felt like he had to be a bit of a wet blanket a lot of the time. <laughs> like he was he was very much like a realist and trying to confront things. And, and I don't know, I felt like he had to be kind of the voice of reason or bringing the bad news a lot. And I was like, oh, Alex, I wish you could be fun, a little more fun. But he was dealing with some stuff. I get it. <laughs> I mean, such is the burden of being group leader, right? I mean, I think thinking back on like all of the Marvel teams that seems to be sort of consistent among them. Think about Cyclops for the X-Men or Captain America for the Avengers. That is sort of their their role there. It is kind of thankless because, man, do I not have warm and fuzzy feelings about Cyclops. <laughs> nobody does. Not Not nobody. Virtually nobody. <laughs> <laughs> Poor Scott Summers. <laughs> it's true. Poor Scott. I like you, Scott. (laughs) Even though I was feeling sorry for Alex having to be a bit of a wet blanket all the time, I will say I did really enjoy his wardrobe. I totally want Alex's wardrobe most of of the time. (laughs) He got, like, good, colorful shirts and logo things, and I appreciate his glasses. And he has good hair. I I really appreciate the way they... They did characters character design for the show because he looks very much like comic book Alex. Moving on to Chase. First of all, while I like Greg Sulkin in this role, I, I think he did a good job. I do think he looks a little old to be playing Chase. 
<laughs> I thought he looked a little old to be playing a teenager when they cast him on Faking It, and now he's even a couple years older. I mean, in the comics, he is the oldest of the Runaways. Okay, that helps. That helps. I will say, though, when they announced the cast, Chase was probably the one I'm kind of like, that is least what I was expecting. Isn't he blonde in the comics? He is. He's sort of tall and lanky and blonde. Like, I don't object to this casting, but it just, it was like, hmm, not what I was expecting, but okay. I feel like Chase was the character that had to grow on me the most. I can't, like, thinking back, I can't even think of anything specifically he does that's super horrible. He does say some stuff throughout the series that I, that make me roll my eyes at him, but he's never terrible, terrible in retrospect, but he is sort of the stereotypical jock guy who's like, oh, let's break into our parents' liquor cabinet. And I don't know, he feels very predictable at first, I guess. That's fair. I think he's sort of like that in the comics, too, where he's just kind of like the guy who you just kind of want to go, dude, please stop. (laughs) (laughs) He means well, but you're also just kind of like, please, please stop. Just don't, don't do that. Don't do that. But they do have him pretty quickly, because I think this happens in the first episode, where he and Carolina go to the party, and he walks in on the his lacrosse buddies trying to assault her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't remember if that's episode one or two, but yeah. It's very early in the series. They have him intervene and stop them. And that went quite a ways to redeeming him for me. I appreciated that the show never tried to apologize for those guys' behavior. They They were very clear what that action was and that it was not okay. Yeah, I again, I don't know if it's because of my familiarity with the comics or or what, but I don't know. I didn't have an issue with Chase, but I do think that it's fair that it takes a while to maybe warm up to him depending on on one's own tastes character-wise. One of Chase's most significant storylines is his relationship with his father. They established very over- early on that he's his father has been abusive toward him, his mother. It's less clear in the beginning. I, I feel like it's suggested that he's been abusive toward him, and we see later that, yes, that is the case. Mm-hmm. And I have mixed feelings about how that's handled. His attitude towards his father, it feels like, is very up and down. And while I feel like that's realistic in some ways, I feel like people generally have very conflicted feelings toward abusive family members. It sometimes can be a bit of a a whiplash sensation in the show. I don't know. How, how did you feel about how that was handled, his relationship with his father? I agree with you. There's, I know we were going to talk about the comics later, but I feel like I can't avoid talking about it. In the comics, that is literally how we are introduced to Chase Stine and his family. The first panel is his father punching Chase in the face. Mm. So, like, I knew going in that that was going to be the situation. Yeah, it's it's kind of hard to watch some of it. And I agree with yeah. you that it's it seems realistic, maybe, that, that Chase just kind of doesn't know how to respond to the situation either because there's that whole combination of knowing what his father could do but also not really wanting to believe it i do find it believable that when his father shows him some 
affection or at least some interest because we have that moment where his father catches him using his materials in his lab to build his sort of first draft of his fisticons where with a g fyi fisticons in the comics it is wow okay thank you because it sounds like they're saying cons (laughs) it sure does sound like they're saying fisticons but in the comics it's written fisticons okay thank you i will i will adjust when he's making his first draft of the Fistagons and his father finds him, you definitely have that sense of Chase thinks, oh, crap, I'm about to get in a whole lot of trouble. But his father is like pleased that he's showing interest in something he's interested in. Mm-hmm. And so I can understand, given that moment between the two of them, Chase thinking like, oh, maybe I could have a different relationship with my dad now. This is the relationship I'd like to have with him. But I think the part that feels a little confusing to me is later on in the season where we see his mom shoot his dad and Chase knows his dad is dying or hurt or not doing very well. And it causes that big kerfuffle between the group where Chase like steals Alex's tablet and smashes it and and that whole business. He's like so emotional in that moment. And I understand that. But then it switches to like his mother cleaning up his dad's blood and they're kind of like making jokes about it. Mm-hmm. That part that part of the plot kind of felt a little uneven to me. I'm like, where is that really intense emotion? You know, I need to save my dad because maybe we could have another chance at our relationship. Where did that intensity go? It just seemed to kind of dissipate and I didn't quite understand that part of it. Yeah, the only thing I can come up with is that when he smashes Alex's computer, I think they're still in the midst of not knowing if Victor's going to get any help, right? Because I did see some discussion online later where they were like, okay, but the next episode, he kind of is like, yeah, let's turn our parents in and run away and whatever. So where did that change come from? And that's sort of all I can come up with is his father seems to be in imminent danger in the previous episode. And so it is very much a a possibility that Victor could die. But once it seems like he's safe or could potentially be safe, I think that's when the change happens. Though I still can't quite reconcile it, Yeah, but it makes more sense to me looking at it that way. It's like, well, the the imminent danger is over. And also the fact that his father was going to potentially kill him, and that's why his mother shot him. I just, I don't know. It's all very complicated, and I'm not sure it entirely tracks for me. But it's like I can kind of understand it, but also also kind of not. It could be clearer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it could be clearer, I think, in the writing of that storyline where Chase is coming from at a particular moment. But again, I don't I don't want to erase the fact that people have very complicated relationships with family members who abuse them. So it I'm not trying to say that it's impossible that that type of switches can can happen. I just feel like from a writing perspective it could maybe be a bit clearer where mm-hmm. Chase is coming from. So we've talked about the the boys of the group. We should probably talk about the girls. Because there's more girls than boys. There's more girls than boys on this show, which is kind of awesome. So I, I guess we sh- we should say at this point, in case people didn't realize, Gert, who is played by Ariella Barrer, is the same actress who played Carmen over on One Day at a Time. She is great over on One Day at a Time. Gert is a very different character for her to be playing. 
And I really, I thought she was well cast as Gert, but I have some issues with Gert's storylines. So I, I, let's start with you. How did you feel about Gert and, and how they handled her storyline? I think I know what you're going to talk about, and I agree that's not great. <laughs> but I don't know. I have I have complicated feelings about Gert just sort of generally. Like, I like Gert. Don't get me wrong. But she's always very certain about everything she is saying. And it's just kind of like, oh, Gert, no. Sometimes. <laughs> she's very much defined by not quite rebellion, but a little bit. Gert was definitely, this probably is not a surprise to you, Gert was definitely the character that I connected with the most when I originally read the comic, because I was like, yay, she's, you know, she's a fat girl. You don't see that very much in comics. Generally, everybody is portrayed as very skinny and thin, and nothing against skinny or thin people, but it was nice to see some body diversity amongst the group. Yep. And she's this politicized, opinionated, outspoken young girl. And those are always the characters, especially when I was, a, you know, a young adult, those were always the characters that spoke to me the most. So going into watching this series, I was rooting for Gert. I was like, yes, Gert. And then I was like, oh, Arielle Barrera, she's great. I love that she's playing Gert. But I really disliked how they handled the storyline with her and Chase. I just, oh, as well as sort of her trying to start her little feminist group, those two things just, I was very upset with how they handled those. Yeah. I don't know how to feel about the whole thing with Chase, just because it is true to the comic that she and Chase were a thing. But if I'm recalling correctly, I read it not that long ago. There wasn't necessarily that that whole like longing buildup thing with her and Chase. Mm -hmm. It was just like a thing that happened suddenly. And they were like, yes, we both like this. And they were basically an instant couple from that point on is kind of how it worked in the comics. So this whole thing where she's pining from afar, I don't necessarily have an issue with until they get to the point where she gets a little nasty with Carolina. Mm -hmm. I don't I don't love that at all. Yeah, they they very much use Gert's crush on Chase to foster resentment between her and Carolina it's not Carolina's fault that Chase is interested in her. So mm -hmm. I feel like it just makes Gert look bad that she's right. upset with Carolina, that Chase is interested in her. And then it feels very much like, I know this wasn't their intention, but it ends up kind of feeling like, oh, Gert was just an angry feminist because the boy she liked didn't like her back, you know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and I, and I don't, I don't like that at all. And they, they end up having the, the three people who, approach her about starting like a feminist club those end up being very like comical over the top characters which i feel is, like undercuts the very nature of sort of gert's political viewpoint it kind of makes it seem a little silly to me and i and i dislike that yeah yeah i it it wasn't handled great it's like i don't mind it as a story point but the way it ended up playing out was no <laughs> Quite honestly, even as somebody who went into the series wanting to love Gert, the antagonism that she has between herself and Carolina because of Chase, I, I think makes her kind of unlikable and nasty. Like, I feel like her cynicism in the comic can be relatable and funny. And don't get me wrong, I feel like Aria Barrera is a very good comedic actress. I think she handles those really 
cynical little asides that Gert has very well. But I think it com- makes her come off as, as nasty, the way that they pit those two characters against each other. And so I felt very thankful that they had Gert's relationship with Molly to counteract those. Mm-hmm. Because I thought those were some of my favorite scenes. Oh, me too. Were Gert and Molly together. Yeah, that that is something that's very different from the comics. Molly wasn't part of Gert's family. Yeah, so so that was like a choice that I was like, I don't understand why they're making this choice. But I did like that relationship so much that, oh, okay, I'll accept this. <laughs> I really love those sisterly moments that we got to see between Gert and Molly. I feel like we want to talk about Molly next, but before we move on, I will say that was something from the original comics that struck me as kind of silly, like Gert's kind of unique ability that she had was this psychic relationship with the dinosaur. But I thought it actually played out very sweetly. Like toward the end of the season when she had to say goodbye to her dinosaur, I got really sad about it. (laughs) So I was surprised how well that worked when at least from sort of an outsider perspective, it seems like a silly ability to give a character. It is totally not a silly ability, Stephanie. It is the best <laughs> ability in the world. You're the ridiculous one. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. I apologize profusely. <laughs> Good. <laughs> So clearly you have very warm and fuzzy feelings about Gert and her dinosaur. How how did you feel it went in the series? Oh, I thought it was great. I really loved the the relationship, the bond between Gert and Old Lace. I'm so glad they finally named Old Lace in the last episode. I know. I was like, Gert and her dinosaur. Gert and her dinosaur. Chris, what's her what's the dinosaur's name? Does it have a name? <laughs> I think I, I asked you that seconds before the series actually named the dinosaurs like oh finally the dinosaur has a name you did i got very confused i'm like i thought she was watching the episode but oh <laughs> so you were pleased with with how they handled old lace and gert's relationship very much and i'm also pleased with how old lace looks in the show because mm. i i was i was worried but it looks like they actually used like a like a puppet or something so they could actually interact with it yeah they use like a practical effect very happy about that I did get very upset when she had to say goodbye to Old Lace. So I was glad that Old Lace was back at the end of the season and that they're running off together. Yay. Yep. (sighs) I love Old Lace so much. Do we get an explanation in the comics as to why she has the psychic connection with the dinosaur? Because it seemed like the the Yorkses were surprised that the dinosaur listened to Gert in particular. Well... One of the changes from the comics is the the Yorkses are actually from the future. Oh. And they're time travelers. And so Old Lace in the comics is actually a genetically engineered dinosaur that they had custom made in the 87th, I think, 87th century, of course, obviously. So that that's your comic book explanation. I don't know what they were going for in the in the show. It, it just seemed like maybe Old Lace had gotten attached to Gert somehow because <laughs> their vents were connected. I don't know. Oh, I'd I thought was that maybe part. what they yeah, were. That's a good point, though. What they were trying to convey because she was it was I think it was that scene where she's singing to Molly and they show Old Lace hearing her. Mm. That's all I got, though. 
Well, you mentioned Molly. Let's talk about Molly. I feel like we, if we had to name a cinnamon roll of the show, it would definitely be Molly. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that is fair. Molly is delightful. I love her so much. Me too. And, you know, from back reading the comics before, I always love Molly so much. She's just so much fun. I mean, she's she's the youngest in the group. She's actually younger in the comics than she is in the show. But she's still she's still like everybody's little sister. And she's just excited about stuff. Again, more so in the comics than in the show, I think, probably. Though that might still be true in the show. She has that line about maybe my superpower is my positive attitude. And I was like, oh, Molly. <laughs> she certainly has the best set of hats. <laughs> yes, for sure. <laughs> but I like that even though Molly is a very she's a very pure character, they allow her to like mess up in the course of the season, but you you totally understand why she messes up the way that she messes mm-hmm. up. One of my favorite things, true in the comics as well as the show. Basically, she's, you know, she's like a tiny, tiny Hulk. <laughs> she's got super strength. But every time she uses the super strength, she, she has to take a nap immediately afterwards. She nap, just yeah. wears herself out. <laughs> it's like, oh, she's all tuckered out. It's a great comedic note to throw in there. There's that joke where she finally reveals to the group that she told Catherine, like, a little bit. And... I think it was Chase who said something like, it's your fault why there's only one bathroom at the coffee shop. <laughs> she whipped out the toilet. <laughs> I missed that. I need to go back and rewatch. It, it gave me a good job. Uh, that is a good one. Uh, when she did that, I'm just kind of like, how does nobody know that that's exactly what's happening? She just smashed through a concrete wall. <laughs> I, I felt like they gave Al, uh, Molly a nice through story. And I really liked Graciela, I think was her name. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When she got sent to Graciela, I liked that they had scenes where it was Molly and her talking in Spanish. Mm-hmm. And similarly, I liked that Nico's parents had a scene where they talked in Japanese, but they didn't put a translation on the screen. I, I liked that they allowed these families that use different languages from time to time. They let them like have their moments and let sort of the conversation speak for itself without having to translate it into English for people who are watching who may not understand the language they were speaking in. Not to not to bring another show into it, but that was one of the things I always liked about Alias was they would often be in other countries and be speaking in other languages and, and not caption it. Because if you're paying enough attention to the scene, you can tell more or less what's going on. It doesn't it doesn't need translation. Yeah, I guess that is something about a storyline that is unique. Is she it felt like she was separated a lot from the group because they didn't believe her about her strength. You know, she had that that separate little storyline with Catherine, who was trying to get information out of her. She got sent away. And and even though she kind of was separated from the group a lot, I felt like Molly did a good mm-hmm. job. The actress playing Molly did a good job, really, establishing her as her own person. Right. And she's a fan of Bamba Stereo. So good job, Molly. They're great. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I'm hearing that song a lot these days. Because it's a good song. It's it a is great a good song. song. It's just like, oh, it's that song again. Yeah, I, I, it is interesting to me that they aged her up a few years in the show. I have mixed feelings about it, but I can see why they did it. I mean, it it makes sense to me. I feel like 
they were largely motivated by work schedules. That's what I mean. When, yeah. <laughs> yeah. When you have an actor who's under a certain age, you know, the amount of hours they can work a day is very limited, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But yeah, in, in the comics, Molly is like 11. So she's very much like everybody's kid sister, right? Like they they treat her like their kid sister. And there's a little bit of that in the show. Is she Latina in the comics? No, no, she's not. It's Molly Hayes mm. in the comics. So so on team positivity with Molly, we also have Carolina. And I've got to tell you, I love Carolina. From the comics, from the series, from both? From both. Okay. I'm, I'm very fond of her. She's just like, aw, you, you sweet, innocent, tall, beautiful girl. Like, just, aw. <laughs> <laughs> I like, though, from the beginning in the series, at least, even though she's this very conventionally attractive girl, and they, they spend time at the school, like you mentioned, they establish from the beginning she's still an outcast. People think she's weird because of this association she has with her mom's church. Is that an element of her character in the series, or is she a bit more accepted in the group? Here's the thing. <laughs> in the comics, the church doesn't exist. Right. So in the comics, her parents are both actors. They're like famous movie stars, which then, you know, explains why Caroline is like a tall, skinny, beautiful blonde girl, because <laughs> that's what her parents are. Again, because there's not so much interaction with people outside of the group, it's harder to gauge how she was socially. But they do stress the fact that Carolina was sort of alienated because it turns out she's an alien. I, I would describe her in the comics as being like enthusiastic and a little bit awkward. I have seen a few panels from the comics with Carolina included, and it seems from her body language, she, she does come off as more awkward than she did to me, at least initially in the series. It seems like yes. in the series, she's like comfortable with herself on a certain level. It's just when she has to go interact with people outside of her immediate kind of church world that she feels not included. I think that's fair. Carolina has a very robust character arc, I feel like, because she, she you know, she has to discover she's an alien. She is accepting that she's attracted to girls. She is figuring out, like, what her church is up to. Like, she has a lot of stuff going on in this first season. It's true. And we don't actually know that the show version is an alien. We don't know exactly what the deal is. That's fair. That's fair. But she sparkles. She has to accept that she sparkles. <laughs> yes. She she is kind of a human rainbow, a sparkly human rainbow, uh, which is fitting. And also she can fly, which uh, <laughs> I did like that character beat in the show. That was a that was a good moment where she realized she could fly. Yes. Yeah, I, I enjoyed that moment, too. It was also included in the same scene where Chase kisses her, and she seems so not interested, and it made me laugh so hard, <laughs> the expression on her face. Poor Carolina is just kind of like, okay, this is the thing that is happening now. Like, hmm, no, thank you. <laughs> I really enjoy Virginia Gardner as Carolina. I thought she was, she's probably one of my favorite casting choices, is, is her in particular. I feel like they did a good job, yeah. 
Very endearing. <laughs> I forget which episode it was in, but there was that one episode where Alex was kidnapped and like Nico shows up and Nico gives Carolina like a reassuring hug and Carolina hugs her back. And I remember sending you a DM that was like, I think they're hinting that Carolina likes Nico. And your response was, ha! And Lena Luther thinks that Cara Danvers is just okay. <laughs> is that what I said? I don't even remember that. <laughs> Something to that effect. <laughs> it's true, though. It's true. Because who boy does Carolina like Nico? And that storyline definitely did not go where I was thinking it would. I was honestly not sure. Because comic spoilers, that is not a thing that happens in the comics. Well, I'll I'll save the rest of the comic talk for later. But I keep saying that. (laughs) It's a lie. (laughs) This particular thing I will save for later. But... But I feel like Carolina just, she emerges as a, a good person. She's like a good person in the beginning, and she keeps being a good person, which is maybe not the most dynamic story arc, but I like it. Yeah, like that's not what her story arc is about. It's not about whether yeah. or not she's going to be good or bad. It's about how much of who she is is she going to reveal, you know, yeah, reveal or admit to or that sort of thing. Oh, I did really, you you mentioned Molly earlier. I loved that scene that Carolina and Molly had, where they were sort of bonding over being superpowered, essentially. Yes. I I liked that choice a lot, where Molly felt isolated from the rest of the group, and Carolina was the one who went after her. Yep. I love it. I want more. And speaking of Nico... I have to say, of all of the younger actors that they cast, I was most impressed by Lyrica Okano. I felt like she really nailed the, in particular, the really emotional stuff that she had to do in, like, the flashbacks regarding Amy. And she just, she had a lot of really fraught scenes that she had to play, and I was very impressed with her. Yeah, and they had her doing some comedy, too. So she was really Mm -hmm. having to do all sorts of different stuff. and, And I thought she was very good at all of it. Yeah. That scene that she has with Alex fairly early on where she's like, we have to pretend that we're making out. <laughs> that then, scene made me laugh a lot. <laughs> I love that scene. It was so great because Alex was just kind of like, what is happening? And then he didn't know what to do or where to put his hands. And and Nico was just kind of like, here. <laughs> First slapping his hands away and then putting them where she wanted them. It was pretty great. <laughs> That's a very funny scene. Both of the actors do a really good job in that scene. And yeah, just like the the whole the whole story arc regarding Amy and her parents. I know we've used the word fraught a number of times, but it's very it's very fraught. Sort of similar to Chase and his relationship with his father especially. It's that same sort of trying to negotiate that where like she doesn't trust her mother, but then her mother sees that she's interested in the staff. Mm-hmm. and is going to teach her how to use it. And so they're sort of bonding over that. But there's this whole element of of distrust. It's good stuff. I thought. I thought it was good stuff. Oh, yeah. There's a lot of really interesting stuff going on between Nico and her parents. And I like that – I feel like her mother in particular – they wrote for her pretty well. They set her up as like this villainous character, but she doesn't always behave the way that you expect her to. Mm-hmm. And I was very interested in the relationship between Nico and her mom. 
And I liked, I don't know if this is, is true of the comic book as, as well, but I like that they gave her a foundation of being a practicing Wiccan, pagan, I'm not sure which word she prefers. You know, she makes references to the maiden mother and crone, as well as the fact that she also happens to be able to use this magical staff that her her mother was given. But I like that they established her as actually being a practicing pagan. I don't remember exactly how they they define her in the comics. I'll have to go look for you. But she definitely is a goth in the comics, and she's totally a goth here. Mm-hmm. She got some great wardrobe and hair. Which is great, because... Again, pretty true to the comic design. Nico has great hair in the comics. I don't know how you'd really uh, replicate that in real life. I feel like they did a pretty good job of it, or at least a, a good job of attempting it. <laughs> I don't know if have, how much of have you seen of um, Adrian Alfona's Nico. I've seen a decent bit. I've seen quite a bit on Tumblr where people have compared wardrobe and photography choices that they've used on the show to match up with panels from the comic books. And I don't know if that if if you appreciate that as somebody who read the comics, but it does seem like they really tried to go back to those original comics as much as they could mm-hmm. and translate them into a real life context. In particular, I'm thinking of the twister moment in the first episode or for First couple episodes, I can't remember which one it was. I think it's the first it is episode. It the first episode, yes. That that made me very happy. Yeah, because they pretty much recreated it almost perfectly, mm-hmm. how the characters were positioned in the Twister moment when their parents found them. Yeah, the thing that cracks me up most is um, the last episode when they have to go to Goodwill to get some clothes for themselves. <laughs> yeah. The clothes they get for themselves are the ones that they wore in the comic 15 years ago. <laughs> And it makes sense that they would find those clothes at Goodwill, right? Yeah, because 15 <laughs> years ago, that was that was high fashion 15 years ago. <laughs> Maybe not. Maybe not high fashion. <laughs> but I feel like Nico, similar to Carolina, she had a lot of storylines going on in this first season. You know, the mystery around Amy was a big one. Is that something from the comics? Or is Amy something that was created for the series? Amy was created for the series. There's no sister ever mentioned for Nico or any of the kids. In fact, there's a plot point that revolves around none of them having siblings. <laughs> so yeah, that's one of those things I can't quite figure out why they decided to go this route for the series. But, you know, I, it, it has motivated a lot of stuff during the first season. So it's like, I guess that's why? I don't know. Yeah, and the Amy storyline is maybe a good way for us to move into talking about the parents, because I feel like when we enter the series, we have these couple of things that are hanging over us, sort of like past events. We have the the mystery around Molly's parents, and then we have this mystery around Amy. Mm -hmm. And both of those mysteries, they're important to the kids, but then they also fuel how the parents' storylines end up playing out. The end of the season, for sure, sets up this new structure of who is the bad guy. Because in the beginning, it's like the parents versus the kids. You know, the kids find out their parents are villainous. But then we introduce this guy, Jonah. And by the end of the season, it for sure seems like we have the kids who feel like the parents are the bad guys and the parents who feel like Jonah is the bad guy. So there's like this new hierarchy of of evil by the end of the season. And I feel like both the Hernandez and the Amy storylines feed into causing that split at the end of the season. And what's interesting to me is it's so 
different from the comics, right? The parents are not in the comics all that much. So they've structured this season of the show entirely differently where the kids don't run away right away. I mean, I think that's how either the first or second issue of the comic ends is the kids run away. (laughs) And it happens literally at the end of the last episode of the 10 episode season. As a result of that, we spend much more time with the parents, which is good in developing a whole storyline for them. But what was interesting in the comics to me was that we get bits and pieces of their story. We see them periodically, like, plotting how to get the kids back or to keep them from talking or whatever. But there's a reveal that happens regarding them and their motivations more towards the end of the series, the the first 18 issues, I should say. And it's a really good revelation, I thought and gives a new interpretation to everything they had done before that. And so it made it a really good reveal. They are sort of playing with that same idea regarding Jonah, where you're like starting to realize how much Jonah is coercing them into cooperating. So, you know, okay. <laughs> I'm okay with it. But also, I'm just very confused generally. <laughs> It's like, I just don't know what to make of Jonah, because Jonah doesn't exist in the comics. So I'm like, I don't, I don't know what to do with you. Mentally. Mentally. I'm just kind of like, I, I don't know where this is going. I feel like both you and I tend to have a similar feeling about these Marvel TV shows in particular. We feel like they often spend more time with the villains than we actually want. Yes. You know, I, I'm... I'm all for not just having a cardboard cutout villain, etc. I think that's fine. Uh, but at the same time, I don't want to spend half of my my runtime interacting with this villain. I want to spend the time with with the heroes. I feel like there's this tendency in Marvel shows especially to like lovingly render the villain of the season and it it makes me actually kind of mad. <laughs> <laughs> like I really dislike it. I don't I don't want it. The only Marvel show that I think has done really well with it so far is Jessica Jones. I'm talking specific more specifically about the um the Netflix Marvel shows. They spend a lot of time with the villain and I just I don't want it. <laughs> Again, except for Jessica Jones. I feel like that was the right level. Like that's what I want. I understand who he is and what his deal is and why he's doing it. And that's all I need. Yeah. But bringing that around to to Marvel's Runaways, I too had that initial thought like, oh, I really don't care about the parents. And those are probably the episodes that I like the least. Like I remember, I think it was episode two or three that I was kind of not paying a whole lot of attention to because they were spending a lot of time with the parents. And then similarly, the episode with the parent night at the school, I found myself tuning out a lot because we were spending a lot of time with the parents. But given the way the season ends, I think I understand why they were having us spend so much time with the parents, Mm -hmm. because I feel like they want us to keep the parents in play as maybe they're not as bad as we think they are. I still don't know that I wanted to spend as much time with them as we did, but I feel like that was probably their motivation for putting as much stuff about the parents into the series that they did. Right. 
I do kind of wonder how the series is going to play out as a whole. Because, again, like, them running away happens at the very end. That's like the end of the first issue (laughs) in the comics. So I'm just kind of like, is this whole series supposed to be, like, the arc of the first 18 issues? I'm just... I'm still trying to, like, orient my brain to what the show is doing versus the comics, which I probably shouldn't do. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They're clearly not sticking exactly to the comics, so... Right. I do understand why in the the show, the kids stick around. They play a lot on this idea of, these are our parents, what does it mean that we now know these things about them? Like, how do we negotiate this relationship that we've had with them? So I I can understand how most of these kids would be unwilling to just be like, we have to run away. Clearly, our parents are evil. They would want to find a different explanation for what they saw. So I, I get why they stick around and kind of need to get more evidence before they decide to cut ties with their parents. Yeah, I, I don't I don't resent the show for spending as much time. Well, no, I do resent them for spending as much time as they do. I don't resent them for <laughs> developing the characters more than they did in the comics. It does a service to the characters by giving us that time before they run away. Because we do see them in different environments than we do in the comics. We get to know them a little bit more as individuals in their everyday lives before the major event of becoming runaways. Though, yeah, like, had they ended the series there at the end of this first season and not gotten a second season... I think I would have been really annoyed. (laughs) Again, not that I wasn't happy with the 10 episodes we got. I was. You know, I'm sure much fan fiction would have followed and that would have been okay. But it's just there's so much stuff that happened in the comics. And I'm curious what of that, if anything, they're going to do in following episodes. Episodes and seasons. So while I I definitely cared less for what was going on with the parents than I did what was going on with the kids. I I will say Dale and Stacy for sure emerged as my favorite of the parent couples. I think those two actors had the best chemistry with each other. And Well, and they got to be funny. Yes, they got to be funny and they they obviously were they were the group of parents that was supposed to hook the audience in and make them think, oh, maybe they're not as bad as we really think. Clearly, there's something going on here that we don't get if, like, these two likable, funny people are part of this evil organization. So I think they had, like, the easiest job of the parents winning the audience over. But I do think that those two actors were really well cast together. I thought they made a great couple. Mm-hmm. Yep, me too. I always love Brigid Brana. I think she's great. I, I'm not as familiar with the actor who played Dale. I know he played Marshall on, I think, 24 or Alias. What was it? Was he it was Alias? Alias. It's Marshall Flinkman. The actor's name is Kevin Wiseman. I love him. There we go. He's great. I'm I'm very fond. And they for sure, I, I will say for me personally, kept me intrigued. Like, can they really be all this bad if Dale and Stacy are part of this group? Because Dale and Stacy seem pretty harmless. They're a couple of goofy, goofy hippies. They make pad CU jokes and like cheese, you know? <laughs> they like cheese so much that they make it themselves. And I think they are the ones that I 
but that they really cared about their kids first. Mm-hmm. You know, I think later in the season you get like, okay, the parents really do care about their children. But for Dale and Stacy, I, I felt like them more immediately, you think, okay, they really do care about these kids and they're trying to fight for these kids. I agree. I think my f- second favorite pair of parents was Nico's parents, though. Hmm. Interesting. <laughs> well, okay. Is it Brittany Ishibashi? Mm-hmm. Is that her first name? She, as Tina, is terrifying. Scares the piss out of me. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But I find her very compelling. And I really enjoyed the dynamic that she had with Nico's dad. Plus, also on a shallow side, Nico's dad, kind of hunky. He is. (laughs) It's true. And uh, when he was groveling before her in his underwear, I'm like, this is the best scene ever. Really? I'm learning a lot about you. Not really, really. But I did enjoy that scene. (laughs) Not just because he was in his underwear. Still, I feel like I'm learning a lot about you. (laughs) So uh, did you have a a favorite pair of parents? Well, at first I thought it might be the Deans, but it turns out that was all a filthy lie. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. I'm so mad. I mean, Mm. I, I concur with you about the Yorks family. Because they're adorable mm-hmm. and they're goofy hippies. And how can you not like them? Because they're the comedic element. But yeah, also early on, I, I thought I thought I was going to really like the Deans, but uh, nope. <laughs> nope. I thought that was a good twist, though. It was a good twist. With her, her dad. Because, like, I trusted you, man. <laughs> right? I trusted him up until he betrayed them. Like, when... Carolina, you know, runs down after Chase, who's trying to get to his dad, and Frank is keeping Chase from from going down in the basement. I was like, oh, good. Carolina's going to tell Frank. Maybe he can help them. But no, Frank, lies. You did not help. You made things worse. Yep. Well, because they, they totally played us, because just before that, he'd been such a good dad to Carolina, because Jonah was being all creepy, and Frank was like, no, don't be creepy to my daughter. Yeah, and that was, I think, a real redeeming moment for Frank, even though he was being less reliable at the end of the season. when He's like, she is my daughter. I raised her. That he wasn't willing to just turn his back on her when it was revealed that she wasn't his biological daughter. It was like, yes, Frank, good dad. But even at the end of the season, he was still saying, like, I care about Carolina. I don't want her to be adversely affected by this even though he's like doing stuff we don't want him to do he still seems to be motivated by his love for his daughter yes and that was sort of the big the big reveal if you will for most of the parents at the end of the season was Mm -hmm. like oh i think they are actually doing this for their kids even though it's so hard to tell at this point (laughs) so i am very intrigued to see where this goes in season two, because we have the setup at the end of the season with the kids being framed for Destiny's death. I'm assuming we're, are we supposed to think that their parents did that in order to track them down? Yeah, I think we're supposed to assume that whether or not that's actually going to be what happened. I don't know. That's fair. So we have that set up where we have the parents trying to get their kids back, but going about it in a way that makes their kids trust them even less. And then we have the the element of uh, at least most of the parents now considering themselves to be at odds with Jonah, mm-hmm. who has an ally in Frank for sure, and maybe Victor if Victor gets better. <sighs> so complicated. 
I guess briefly, we've, we've mentioned them on the way, but do we want to talk briefly about the ships that are going on in the show? Because it feels like it's complicated. <laughs> it, it is a little complicated. Uh, as I mentioned to you before, there there's a Tumblr post that I saw going around that was like a diagram of... This was, this was mid-season, mind you. A diagram of everybody's crushes. <laughs> so it went, you know, Gert to Chase, Chase to Carolina... Carolina to Nico, and then Nico and Alex going both ways. I, I love a good diagram. And Gert has that that great meta line where she's talking on the phone with Carolina about how, why don't you just go visit Chase? Oh, because he kissed you, and you don't like him. You like Nico, who likes Alex. This is great. It is It is the verbal version of the diagram, yes. <laughs> I, I feel like I'm mostly pleased with how the ships ended up, even though I didn't love how Chase and Gert were written kind of before the end of the season. You know, there's that final moment when they're dozing in the van and it pans over all the characters and like Gert and Chase are kind of holding hands. And I was like, oh, and then I got to Carolina and Nico and they were spooning. I was like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> and that Nico's the so big spoon. <laughs> Yes, she's so small, she's but she's like the half big a spoon. foot shorter than <laughs> Carolina, but big spoon. <laughs> Were you very excited that they made Carolina and Nico at least smooch? We don't know if they're officially a thing yet, but they they have smooched twice, so it it feels positive. In and that they regard. were smiling into that second smooch, so I am uh-huh. I'm very pleased with it because uh, reading the comics, it always felt like a thing that like maybe could happen someday, or at least that's how I remember feeling about it as I was reading it. It's sort of interesting to go back and reread them, because reading through that first 18 issues, it still feels like that to me. But then you get into really fairly early on in volume two, and uh, shall I spoil some comics info, or shall I save it? No, go ahead. So, spoiler warning for the comics if you don't want to hear. Carolina tries to kiss Nico, but Nico pulls away and has like a minor freak out and and basically ends up rejecting Carolina. But again, even reading it now, I'm like it's it's a complicated rejection where it doesn't feel like it's it's a full rejection. It mostly feels like Nico's kind of like I don't know what's happening right now and and is just sort of panicking about it. Is how it reads to me now. And I think probably how it read to me then, too. So, again, just like it feels like this thing that is just kind of always unresolved. So so part of me always wanted it to happen one day and like, thank you, show. Because <laughs> one day is now. 15 years later. <laughs> almost. Almost 15 years later. And honestly, as as a queer person having watched TV in the meantime, that feels like a reasonable update to the story because mm-hmm. it feels like you know back when when runaways was the first being was first being published that was something you saw a lot right you had the queer character who would try to make an advance on the person that they had a crush on who was obviously going to reject them because they were straight and it's nice for that queer character to have their feelings reciprocated so i i do really like that that was the route that they went in this you know in the 2017 slash 2018 version of runaways Mm-hmm. It feels like Nico on the series is maybe still trying to figure out what's going on for her. I definitely think that 
she wasn't actively crushing on Carolina in a conscious way, the way that Carolina was crushing on her right. in the series. But I like that they had the they had Carolina make the first move, but then Nico kissed her back. Right. And then in the following episode, we have Nico who approaches Carolina and kisses her first. I mean, as you were just talking about with the the update for the current times, I feel like that is yeah, that that makes sense to me cuz like again, it's kind of the same reaction but without the panic. <laughs> is kind of what it was. Or at least that's how it reads to me. Cause, cause Carolina leans in in the comic and Nico just kind of panics about it. Similarly here, she's just kind of like, I'm not sure what's happening, but okay, let's see where this goes. <laughs> and I, and I must say, it has been very heartening to see, at least see the actors express how much they argued for Carolina and Nico to kiss and then to see the cast be really like into that relationship. It's been very like sweet and made me feel i don't know warm and fuzzy gay feelings for the cast <laughs> they they did all seem very uh enthusiastic and excited about it it was it was pretty sweet mm-hmm. to to see them talk about it alex and nico were definitely hinted at here but it never really came to fruition it feels like here in the in the series but it it was a thing in the comics right i i mean there was a scene where they actually made out in the show but yes it it was a thing in the comics they were Somewhat briefly together, yes. Okay, so it wasn't a long-term relationship in the comics? No. Okay. okay. Without spoiling anything, no. <laughs> I mean, it, it depends on how you define long-term, because comics c- timeline is just weird, because it's one issue a month, so I'm not sure how many months of comic issues it was, but it wasn't that long, story-wise. I do feel like that possibility between the two of them was played really well in the series, but... When Nico is just kind of done with Alex at the end of the season, I understand where she's coming from. Like, I understand why Alex was afraid to tell Nico what he knew about Amy. But at the same time, I think it's perfectly reasonable if Nico decides, you know what, even if I get why you didn't tell me, I'm still super pissed with you. And I'm not sure I can trust you enough to smooch you. And, you know, it it feels pretty genuine to me as like a teenager kind of a thing. Where, like, maybe you've got mm-hmm. a crush on one of your friends for a long while. And then at some point, you're just kind of like, you know, I don't know why I did. <laughs> <laughs> or, or, you know, it starts to become a reality and you're kind of like, no, this isn't what I wanted after all. <laughs> I'm just saying, I buy it. it. It makes sense to me. And then the other ships on the show revolve around Chase to a certain extent. He's clearly into Carolina. Carolina. Really not interesting. <laughs> Which he finally picks up on. <laughs> that did make me like Chase. It, it was a moment where I, I thought, good for you, Chase, where he says to his mom something like, seems like the more time I spend with Carolina, the less time she seems to spend want to spend with me. I'm like, thank you for picking up on that, Chase. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and for not being completely oblivious. Again, I did awe at the end when Chase and Gert were holding hands in the van. I, I actually think they're kind of fun together. I liked the episode that they had where they found the dinosaur together. I think they make Mm -hmm. a fun pair. I do quite enjoy them together. I always thought they were fun in the comics. But yeah, the original run of the comics, which we mentioned before, uh, was in the early 2000s. I think it maybe ran like 2003-2004, written by Brian Cavon and drawn by Adrian Alfona. 
apparently the original run lasted only 18 issues before getting canceled. Although, honestly, reading it, you can't tell if it's like that it got canceled or if it was just originally intended to just be that. I don't really know. It came back for a second volume in 2005, which I think went for 30 issues, something like that. Um, most of which was written still by Brian K. Vaughn, but with the last story arc being written by Joss Whedon. And then I think there was another volume that happened after that that was written by, I want to say Terry Moore and maybe one other person I can't remember anymore. Oh, and then there's there are current issues being put out, written by Rainbow Rowell and drawn by Chris Anka. And I'm enjoying them. As of this recording, they've they've released five issues of that series. Yeah, it's interesting because they're picking up in like they're happening in current Marvel continuity. So there's sort of a getting the group back together kind of a thing happening right now, uh, or trying to get the group back together. There are certain things that happen during the run of the series that they were essentially undoing and complicating things in the process. Try not to spoil too much. But they're they're good. I like them uh, so far. I'm very curious what's going to happen in the future. But in that first volume, the first 18 issues, there is a betrayal that happens. A very major betrayal. And I'm curious how that's going to play. There's been much talk of it, because I think, you know, anybody who's read the comics knows it's a major thing that happens. So a lot of us were sort of holding our breath about uh, whether or not that was a thing that was going to happen this season or that they were going to hint at. There have been hints of something possibly with the text messaging, but they they still haven't hinted at it as blatantly. I guess it's not really hinting at then, is it? There were story beats in the comics where you knew that one of the kids was on the parent's side. But for a long time, you didn't know who it was. Mm. It sounds like they're still yeah, going to I'm do curious. the storyline, but they're not saying who the betrayer is going to be. <laughs> I've upset Stephanie. I'm sorry. It's okay. It's okay. But now you know why I have been anxious during this entire season. <laughs> All I'm saying is, leave Carolina and Nico alone. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> <sighs> they found each other on the series, and they didn't find each other in the comics. They have now become kind of precious to me, and I don't want them. And Molly. Leave Molly alone, too. <laughs> well, see, that was part of the thing, too, is I was curious how they were... Because they've changed so much, I didn't know how they were going to play this storyline. Because there were a series of inadvertent minor betrayals, right? Like, mm -hmm. Molly talked to Catherine... Carolina told everything to her father. There were those things, but it sounds like there might still be, at some point, the actual betrayal storyline. Something that I am curious about is the fact that when they run away, Nico doesn't have the staff. Yeah. There's, there's another thing that we should talk about with the differences between the comics. What happens in the comics is... Nico's mother stabs her with the staff of one. Inadvertently, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> when she does that, because I should also clarify, they are actual, like, wizards in the comics. They're tech wizards in <laughs> the show. 
they are actual magical wizards in the comics. And the staff of one is actual magic. And so when Nico gets inadvertently stabbed by the staff of one, it like absorbs into her body. And uh, I think Nico described it as similar to that feeling when you've got something in your eye. She's like, it's like I have something stuck in my soul. <laughs> so, so there's a weird thing for you. <laughs> I assumed that the storyline that they created for Nico's parents being essentially part of like a, a Google or or Apple type of corporation that designed software for phones and things like that. That clearly seemed to be something they injected into this iteration of the comics. Because back in 2005, you know, iPhones were, I think, barely a thing at that point. I think the first iPhone came out in like 2007. iPhones were 2007, yeah. Yeah, so it, it wasn't even something on the market at that point. So that very much seemed to be kind of of this this particular moment, as well as I felt like the adding the Church of Gaborum aspect to the series was perhaps in response to the rising profile of the Church of Scientology. There's been a lot more criticism of the the Church mm -hmm. of Scientology in recent years, and that seemed perhaps to be why they might have took that route with the Gaborum in the series which is very different, as you mentioned, from right. the comics. Because the Gaborim are a thing in the comic series. I wonder very much if that's what is in the ground. But I guess we will find out. Another thing that I'm really curious about is there are all these additional characters that get brought in during the course of the comics. And so I'm curious who, if anyone, they're going to bring in. Some of them I kind of doubt they will, just because I don't know... I mean, this show seems to be trying to base things in reality a little bit more, as they do on most of the, the Marvel shows. But again, like, the Yorkses are, are time travelers, which doesn't seem to be a thing in this. Their Minorus aren't wizards, you know what I mean? Like, stuff like that. The Deans, to our knowledge, are not aliens. Yeah, it feels like most of the supernatural stuff originated from Jonah. Like he is the supernatural element that gave rise to like the staff and the the fact that Carolina is an you know not human. Right. I guess the dinosaur is the one thing that isn't coming from Jonah, uh, but the rest of it, you know, he seems to be the supernatural element in a more or less typical world setting. Right. And the rocks are what gave Molly her powers in the comic books. She's a mutant. But like a lot of the new or a lot of the characters that they add in the series, like Victor Manches, one who shows up, who uh, spoiler alert is like a, a robot, basically. Zavin is one. Have you heard about Zavin? Maybe. <laughs> Zavin is a scroll who shows up and basically is like, "Oh, did your parents not tell you we are betrothed?" <laughs> who were they talking to? Who they were told to? Oh, uh, Carolina. Is this the character who can shapeshift genders? Yes, scrolls are shapeshifters. So Zavin shows up as a dude, and then Carolina's like, I'm sorry, I, I like girls, which is actually her coming out to the group at large. And Zavin's like, oh, is that all? And then shapes of, shapeshifts into a beautiful young woman. Yeah, I knew that element, that Carolina had a love interest in the comic books that was not Nico, who was a character who shapeshifted for mm -hmm. Carolina. Again, like, I don't know how they would do that in the show, since the show doesn't seem particularly interested in doing anything to 
you know, fanciful in that way, if you will. Aliens, I mean. Right. Aliens and shape-shifting aliens and uh, robot people and stuff like that. (laughs) And then there's Clara, I think, later in the series, who is from the past, as I recall. I feel like there's a lot that both of us are curious about might happen in the future with this series. I'm definitely psyched that they got renewed for a second season. I want to know where they're going next because, yeah, between what happened in the comics as far and changes that they've introduced in the show, it just feels like there's there's some interesting possibilities out there. Absolutely, I'm looking forward to it. It's like when when does season two start? <laughs> I know that's the only problem with these types of limited series stuff. It's like, is it going to take two years for us to get season two? <laughs> Or three years. I'm looking at you, Jessica Jones, and Netflix. But anyway, looking forward to season two. Thank you so much, Chris, for talking about season one with me. I appreciate it. Thank you. If you want to keep up with the series that we're covering on this podcast, you can follow us on Twitter. We are at Ask Genre TV, and we have a Tumblr now. Woo-hoo. Where mostly it's me reblogging Supergirl gift sets in the meantime with possibly inappropriate tags on them uh, but <laughs> oh dear but you can you can follow us over on tumblr as uh, ask genre tv if you haven't been following this podcast up until this point we have been doing a lot of stuff about speaking of supergirl about supercorp Kara and lena we've been talking fanfic as well as talking about the Kara and lena content and individual supergirl episodes go check those out on this podcast Analysis is part of the Ask Genre TV family of podcasts. You can find our other podcasts about shows like Lost Girl, Orphan Black, and Killjoys over at our website, askgenretv.com. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>